Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church of your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending him my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even of your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, Aren't you glad you're dry on the inside right now? So this is our second week going through this little letter, uh, the book of Philemon. And uh, last week, we got the gist of what this story, uh, this this, uh, book is about. But there is so much here that uh, we will be spending, not just this week, but the next two weeks before Easter, getting to know all of these characters and getting to know... Uh, their perspective, their role and contribution on bringing peace to the body of Christ. So let me recap the book real quickly for you. We have 
uh, three characters primarily in this, in this story. We have Onesimus, we have Philemon, and we have Paul. And the story behind this letter is something like this. Onesimus, who was a slave of Philemon, apparently stole something or in one way or another defrauded Philemon and decided to run away, to desert Philemon, his master, and decide to escape, to run, to hide. And in his running, he meets the Apostle Paul. Now he, Onesimus, started in the town of Colossae, and Apostle Paul, most likely at this time, is in Rome, in house arrest in Acts chapter 28. We looked at last week what an incredible story it must have been that God arranged Onesimus to go 1,300 miles without capture into the arms of Paul. But Onesimus meets Paul. Paul shares Christ with Onesimus, and Onesimus receives the gospel. And the next thing we see as we look at this letter is that Onesimus, recognizing uh, the gospel's demands upon his life, to repent and to reconcile broken relationships, is now headed back to Philemon with this letter that we have just read, written by Paul, which is going to be asking Philemon to reconcile and receive Onesimus back now that he is in a brother in Christ. Clearly then, the theme of Philemon is reconciliation in Christ. Last week, we saw carefully the story of Onesimus, We saw four changes that came upon Onesimus because of the gospel that made him a peace seeker. He went from condemned to forgiven. He went from being an outsider to being a family member in the household of God. He went from the reputation of useless to being useful. And finally, he went from being a runner to a returner. He went back to Philemon to make right. But if you were listening carefully all the way to the end, and I know that's not true of everyone, but that's, that's probably my fault. If you listened all the way carefully to the end, you would recognize that last week was a cliffhanger. All we know is that Onesimus was headed back to Philemon with a letter asking for an apology, or bringing an apology, asking for forgiveness. But you do not know What Philemon does when Onesimus gets there. Will Onesimus find Philemon treating him with grace? Will Philemon be ready to forgive? That's a big question that we're going to look at today. It reminds me of a situation. I grew up uh, in a police family. My dad was a police officer, and so I, I know all kinds of police stories. And one of my favorite police stories, and one that I think uh, speaks to this situation, is a very common situation where uh, this particular police officer was doing traffic duty, and he had a speeder come right through his his, uh, radar gun. And so he puts on the lights, and he chases after this person, and the person acted unusual. Most people, when they have the police car behind them, they, they slow down, they pull over, they, they receive whatever the police officer has to say to them. This person, though, sped up, started gunning it, started a, a, a police chase, and was getting up to 80, 90, 100 miles per hour. And it seemed like this, this person was, was really guilty of something. Eventually, the behavior changed, the, the speeder slowed down, pulled over, 
and waited at the side of the road for the policeman to come up to the window and begin to address him. And when this police officer came up to him, he said, what in the world are you doing running from a police officer? What explanation do you have speeding away from a man of the law? And this man sitting behind the the wheel looked at him sheepishly and he says, I am so sorry, officer. I am a law-abiding citizen. I don't do things like this. I, I don't know what came over to me except to say that about two weeks ago, my wife ran off with a police officer. And when I saw you in my rearview mirror, I was afraid you were bringing her back. You never expected a joke, did you? So, can you relate to the speeder? Is there someone in your life that you would rather just keep away, that you would rather not see again? Is there somebody in, that, in your situation, in your life, that you just don't want back? That's the story of Philemon. Let's review Philemon's situation. Onesimus has broken his trust, has stolen money from him, has run away. Onesimus' absence has hurt his business. Whatever Onesimus' job was, was clearly important, and now it's not being done. Third, we have to recognize that potentially a year has gone by since Philemon has seen or heard anything from Onesimus. Now think about what a year can do to you when you're angry at somebody. Those those day in and day out where Onesimus is not here failing to do what Onesimus is supposed to do can seed bitterness and resentment and anger. Finally, we have to recognize that Philemon is in a culture of honor and shame that would put incredible pressure upon Philemon to receive Onesimus and give him severe justice. You can't be lenient on your slave because then all slaves will start acting differently would be the logic that Philemon would be afraid of. So the question is, would Philemon accept Onesimus' new reality as a Christian or would he punish him according to his rights under the law? Let me ask you, Do you have an Onesimus in your life? Someone who has wounded you, broken your trust, lived a pattern of hurting you, of not caring about you, of disrespecting or or mistreating you. Somebody who has done something egregious, something that fits in that unforgivable category. Let me ask you, If the same thing were to happen to you that is happening to Philemon, if that person, when you got home from church today, was at your doorstep, ready to say, I'm sorry, would you be ready to forgive? Would you be ready to reconcile? I think if we we try and do this in our flesh, we have to say, no. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more that I need to hear and, and have said and have proven before I can say I forgive you. So what do we do? Paul gives us the hope 
of being able to reconcile against an enemy in verse 9, which is, in my opinion, the key verse for Philemon. Paul says that uh, uh, accordingly, verse 8, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake or on the basis of love, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man. This is the key concept of the letter. It is the only thing that gives Philemon the resources to be able to forgive Onesimus, his enemy. It is acting on the basis of love. So today we are looking at Philemon's part of the story. Who is Philemon? We see in the first several verses of this book that Philemon has a a, a sterling reputation. He is a friend of the Apostle Paul. He is called a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul, somebody who has worked hard for the gospel. We see that he he uses his own house to host a church. We also see that he is renowned for his love and generosity to fellow believers, to all the saints. Philemon seems to be an upstanding and outstanding Christian. However, there is at least one more fact about Philemon that we cannot ignore. He was a slave owner. He was a slave owner. And as we talked last week, the issue of slavery is nowhere condoned in the Bible. In fact, as we see the gospel play out, we will recognize that the institution of slavery cannot survive. But we meet Philemon as a slave owner. And so naturally... We would be inclined against him. We would root for Onesimus, and understandably so. Being a slave owner is not right. It is immoral. It is very wrong. However, we need to understand a couple things to be able to enter Philemon's story. Philemon was probably a slave owner when he was converted. Second, he may even have been a very severe slave owner. That was the custom of Roman culture. Slaves were property, and the slave owner had the right to treat them however they needed to because they were not seen as equal in humanity. Third, we recognize that we do not know what effect the gospel had upon this area of Philemon's life before Paul's letter. It is very reasonable to imagine that this part of Philemon's life was a blind spot that the gospel had not yet shined light into. Okay? However, that is not the case now that Philemon has received this letter. What are we to learn from all of this? I think there is a good thing that we can cherish here, and that is this. God's grace meets us where we are. God's grace does not say, first, you have to get this part of your life right, you have to get these sins out of your life, and then you can come and have Jesus in your life. No, the gospel is we are saved in sin as sinners, saved in a depraved state. And that can be any state. You can be saved from any sin immediately in Christ. And so the grace of God has come to Philemon, a slave owner, and it has saved him right there as a slave owner. However, God's grace does not leave us 
where it finds us. God's grace sanctifies us, calls us to Christ-likeness. So God's grace meets us where we are, meets me and you where we are, whatever sinner we are, but it won't leave us where we are. When we are saved, we are called out of our previous life and set on a course of increasing Christ-likeness. And I believe that is how we need to understand Philemon's story. Philemon was saved as a slave owner by the gospel. But as Paul calls him to live out the gospel in this letter, he is going to have to change radically. He is going to have to learn how to live on the basis of love. The gospel puts the same call upon all of us. If we are going to grow in Christ-likeness and give peace to broken relationships, then we need to learn what it means to act on the basis of love. And that is why Philemon has so much to say to us today, because we are going to discover four meanings of what, what it is to live the Christian life on the basis of love. Let us take a look at these four meanings. We'll start with the first one. What does it mean to live on the basis of love? First, it means our faith is made visible in the church. Our faith is made visible in the church. We look at the uh, verses 4 through 7, which is Paul's thanksgiving in this letter. Paul always has a thanksgiving in his letters where he thanks God for some aspect of the life of of his recipient, which is usually a church, but here it is the individual Philemon. The thanksgivings of Paul's letters are always telling us what the letter is about. If you want to figure out any one of Paul's letters, spend time figuring out what he is saying in his thanksgiving and prayer in that second paragraph of every letter, because his thesis is right there every time. And we find his thesis in verse 5, where we are told, I will read again, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So here Paul is saying, I am thankful for the love and the faith that you have for the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, Paul is using a literary structure here called a chiasmus, which you don't have to remember, it will not be on the test, but the point of this is he has put these terms in a, in, a, in a order that match each other in descending order. So what Paul is saying in this verse is, I thank you for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for your love for all the saints. These are put together, mashed into this chiasmus, for one very critical reason. Paul does not believe that you can separate true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from love for all the saints. If you have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will live out love towards all the saints. Now, who are the saints? They are not an NFC team that we root for in the fall. In the Bible, the saints simply mean believers. You are not made a saint by good works in the church. You are made a saint because Christ 
has paid it all and given you all that you need to be righteous before, before God. The whole statement of saints given to every believer in the New Testament is a clear testimony to the gospel message that you are justified by faith alone. You are made righteous and holy by faith alone in Christ alone. And so when Paul uses the word saints, he is simply talking about believers. Another way to think about the saints, the saints are the church. The saints are the church. Now when we come to verse 6, it is a bit tricky to translate from the Greek. And rather than giving you a bunch of steps in doing that, I will go ahead and say, as I've read all the parallel translations, I believe in this particular case, the NIV translation does a better job than the ESV at bringing out the sense, the meaning of verse 6, which is important for this letter. So the NIV reads for verse 6 like this. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Okay. What does this mean? Paul is praying that Philemon would experience the fullness of the truth and knowledge of the gospel in his life by putting what the gospel tells us into practice in his relationships. So Philemon is going to come very quickly to a a point where he's going to have to decide, am I going to live out the gospel towards Onesimus, or am I going to live out the law? And what Paul wants him to understand is, if you follow through and apply the gospel and receive Onesimus on the basis of love, you will come away with a deeper, richer, more profound connection to Jesus Christ and knowledge of his grace. It is my prayer that you will have a deepened understanding of God's grace towards you by being gracious to someone who has offended you. So what what are some things we need to think about here? First of all, I believe that this, this thesis tells us that we can only give out what has been put into us. If we are going to live out grace and forgiveness towards others, it has to be first put into us. And then more importantly, when we have been filled with grace, when we have been filled with grace, grace will flow out of us. And that is the whole reason that we have picked this image to describe this series. This clear, beautiful glass of water. The grace that comes in spills out into our relationships. If we are being filled with grace, we are overflowing grace. That is what Paul wants Philemon and us all to recognize. And where does this exchange happen, this filling and overflowing happen? It happens amongst the saints. It happens in the church. So it is something we cannot avoid here. True faith is shown by a vital, visible, active love and participation in the local church. If we are going to show that we are filled with grace, 
then we are going to be plugged vitally into the church where we can overflow grace into the lives of those Christ has redeemed. So what Paul wants us to think about, he wants us to think about the Christian faith like my college professor wanted me to think about chemistry. Chemistry has a big fat textbook and a lot of tests. You had to get all that knowledge. You had to get it right. You had to answer the questions right. But you also had to go to the lab. You had to put the knowledge in that book into practice in the laboratory through experiments and different practices. And the two parts went into the same grade. So if you want to have an A in chemistry, you've got to go to the lab. Likewise, if you want to know and have assurance that your faith is truly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to go to the lab of the church. And you need to be connected in vital, loving ministry to one another. Okay? Second. So we saw first, on the basis of love means our faith is made visible in the church. But second, we are going to see that on the basis of love means doing the right thing willingly. Acting on the basis of love means that we are going to do the right thing willingly. Willingly. I want to read these selection of verses out of the letter and then we'll comment on them. Verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. And then verse 14. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Do you see in these passages that Paul has again and again refrained from commanding Philemon to do what he is supposed to do. He is not given a command, yet at the same time, there's no ambiguity in Paul's mind that there is a right thing for you to do. Something that can be called, quite simply, obedience. So what is Paul doing in continually holding back, making a command, which he has the right and authority as an apostle of the Lord Jesus to do, and at the same time making it un confusing that there is a right thing to do. Paul is calling on Philemon to practice the freedom of the gospel. As we just saw in point one, Paul's desire is pastoral for Philemon. I want you to have a deepened knowledge of every good thing that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ by your participation in it. And here Paul is asking him to participate in one of those deep riches of the gospel by experiencing the freedom that Christ has purchased for him to do the right thing willingly. Let us go to the the book of John and understand the background of what is going on to understand this point. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus is having a debate 
with, uh, let's call them the Pharisees. You can double check that. I, I can't remember. <laughs> They're always, you know, over there. Jesus is having a debate with somebody that's not on the right side. Okay? Uh, and he's having this conversation. He answers them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now Jesus says something very unpopular. He calls the audience, the people who are listening to him, slaves to sin. Now what does that mean? A slave, by definition, is not free. A slave, by definition, has to fulfill and live out the will of their master. And Jesus is saying a very shocking thing here. He is saying, your master is sin. And all you are capable of doing is serving sin. You are a slave to sin. All you can hope to do as a slave to sin is fulfill your master's commands, which is to sin and sin more. So this is what is behind the letter to Philemon. Paul is now speaking to someone who is in Christ. But we need to recognize kind of the history of our ability to sin or not to sin as we follow the Bible storyline. If we go all the way back to the very beginning, to Adam before the fall, we recognize that his condition was in the place where he could choose not to sin or he could choose to sin. But once he chose with Eve to sin, this era of slave to sin has been over humanity. So once Adam chose to sin, chose disobedience to God, all of humanity has fallen, and the condition of humanity since Adam's fall is what Jesus calls being slaves to sin. It does not mean that we don't have free will, but it means the only thing our will wants to do is sin in one way or another. And you might say, no, 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 we do good things. We do altruistic things, we do kind things. But I have not met a person outside of the gospel who is doing anything good for God. Doing anything for his glory. And if we are created by God to reflect his image, if everything that we are doing outside of the gospel is pursuing not his glory, then our slavery to sin taints even our very best things. But here's what happens when Christ has come. Christ who died for our sins and clothes us in his righteousness and fills us with his Holy Spirit when we come to him in faith, returns us back to the state of Adam. Where because now we have the Holy Spirit in us, we are able not to sin, and at the same time also able to sin. We still await our resurrection, we still await glory, where the ability to sin is taken away entirely because we are completely consumed with living for the glory of God. But right now, Paul is living in this age which we are in with the gospel of in the gospel you are able to do truly good things in the name of Jesus. And you're also able to not. You still have that dilemma. 
So what Paul wants him to do is not to have to be given a commandment. He wants Philemon to exercise the freedom that Christ has purchased to do the good thing, to do the God-glorifying thing willingly. To experience what Christ has purchased by taking away his sins and filling him with the Holy Spirit. What we are told then, as we look at, at this letter to Philemon, we're also facing another thing. Paul is asking Philemon to do something, which I believe is ultimately to let Onesimus free, that is not something that is the same as Philemon's rights. Philemon has rights that he loves and he is used to. And in the relationship with Onesimus, Philemon has all the rights. He is judge and jury of Onesimus. And what Paul is saying here is, I want you to do the right thing willingly, which is not to exercise your rights, but to do the right thing. In the gospel, we are shown that the right thing is often greater than our rights. And how do we know that? Because what was Christ's rights when he came? Christ could have come with a bill. He could have said, here is everything you have done. Here is the sentence of your moral depraved failure. Judged. Christ could have come with his rights to declare every single person on the face of the earth guilty and removed from his presence. But what the gospel tells us, the beauty of the gospel is, Christ didn't come to service a bill. He came to pay the bill. He came to pay the bill because for him, the greater good was the relationship that him paying the bill brought back, restored. We are told in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ could have come with all his rights and said, serve me or die. But instead he came to serve and to give his life to pay the bill of our sins so that we could live with him in freedom to finally once again live for God's glory. That is the gospel message. And so if gospel love motivates us, if we are living on the basis of love, Paul is reasoning, then our bent in every conflict in our life is towards reconciliation. Not our rights, but peace. Listen to, to the uh, letter from Peter, First Peter 4.8. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We are motivated by love to do the right thing willingly, which is not to end the day with all of our rights burnished but to end the day with reconciliation towards those who have strayed and hurt us. That's a major difference. 
Third, on the basis of love means loving others because God loves them. On the basis of love means loving others because God loves them. Listen to verses 15 and 16 again. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul wants Philemon to grasp the divine perspective as he reasons what is the right thing to do with Onesimus. And he wants us to consider three things that God has done in Onesimus' life. First, he wants us to recognize God's purpose in all of this. If you read carefully, verse 15 has the verb in the passive. It's used in Paul, what we call the divine passive, to suggest that the person who is doing this, who has acted in all of this, is ultimately God. Paul is saying, perhaps it wasn't really Onesimus running away from you. Perhaps it really was God parting you from Onesimus so that Onesimus could become a Christian and come back to you as a brother. What if you looked at it that way instead of what he did to me and instead looked at it as what is God doing in this relationship That he has brought me back my slave as a fellow Christian. That's a new perspective that comes from recognizing what God is doing. Second, God wants us to recognize that Onesimus was gone for a little while. But now because he is a Christian, you have him back forever. You have this relationship eternally. Well, that affects a lot how you think about the moment. If I'm going into eternity as brother and brother with this person, then I need to make that relationship operative right now. And then third, consider, Paul wants Onesimus to consider, God's adoption. Onesimus is coming back no longer as a slave. He is coming back as a beloved brother in the Lord. You see, what has happened here is when Onesimus was saved, God said, you are my child, and you are well loved by me. You are an inheritance of heaven and glory. You call me Abba, and I call you son. That is what has happened in the gospel. And so because of that, the relationship that exists between Philemon and Onesimus can no longer be understood as slave and master, but as brother and brother. Anything else would be to fail to grasp what God has done. We see this summarized in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul says, In the gospel, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. That means a lot to Onesimus. There's no slave nor master. That means a lot to Onesimus. But it also must mean a lot to Philemon. 
Because they're all one in Christ Jesus. And this is why you can see clearly that the institution of slavery is going to be rolled over into the dustbin of history when the gospel controls the hearts of its people. Because when this reality comes into the face of the former ways, you say, I can't. I can't own somebody. As F.F. Bruce said, what this letter does is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And it is a major stain and shame of the church that it took us so many generations to allow this clear teaching to truly rule us. But it was always supposed to. Because it was always there. So what we mean when we say it means loving others because God loves them is this. Here's what Philemon is facing. God's will is clear. I have determined to make Onesimus a son in my house. A son in your house. The question for Philemon then is this. Are you going to disagree with God's will? You can be a son in God's house, but you are a slave in my house. You are forgiven in God's house, but you are going to pay the last penny in my house. Can that happen? No. Philemon is being put in the place of choosing where are you in the, prod- in the parable of the prodigal son? You have the prodigal coming home from the far country. And when he comes home, he meets the father who comes out to wrap his arms around him and says, I have a banquet for you. You were lost, but now you were found. Praise God. But you also have the elder brother who is infuriated that this younger brother who has, has, has ruined the estate, has wasted money on prostitutes, is now coming back and he's getting to have a party? And I'm the good son. I've done everything right. You see, there are two ways that we can wait towards someone who has wronged us. We can wait like the father in love, watching out that window, hoping for repentance, hoping that there will be that day where we can wrap our arms around them because that's what we want to do. And if we could bring the words, I'm sorry, out of that person, we'd do it yesterday. The other way, though, is to be like the elder brother and to just wait in judgment. I hope I get to see that person one more time because I want to tell him a little bit more. I want to lay the whole book on him. Philemon is being told, if you are going to be living out the gospel, you cannot wait for your lost brother in judgment. You have to wait with him, with God in love. The gospel means God's love must order our affections, and that means it has to be breaking down barriers. People you never thought you could love, the gospel is saying, love them because I love them. And that's a challenge for all of us. Has the gospel broken down barriers, or do you just love a certain group of people and ignore another group based on socioeconomic status or race or where they come from? That's not the gospel. 
We love because God loves them. If God has shown love, so must we. Now fourth, we've seen that on the basis of love means our faith is made visible in the church, that it means doing the right thing willingly, that it means loving others because God loves them. Fourth, it means forgiving others as God has forgiven us. What, what sort of forgiveness is being asked for from Philemon? Well, let me give you a, a, an example of what it isn't. When I was in high school, I loved to debate. I loved to just get in front of people and just tell them what I think all the time and, and just make them listen. I found the right job, I think. No. Uh, I loved to debate. And I was good at it. Enjoyed it. Successful at it. I had a debate partner. And uh, she also was very good. But we got to the national tournament my senior year. It's our first time we finally broke through the national tournament. And I spent the six months before nationals doing everything I could to be ready because I wanted to punch high at the national tournament. My debate partner, however, wanted to enjoy her senior year of high school and did very little. And so when we got to the national tournament, we blew it. We had... Uh, no success at all. And it was so obvious. It was because she blew it. She ruined it. I was ready. And I was so mad at her. I threw that relationship away. Because she, she had taken something I cherished and loved and smashed it to smithereens. And I was right for being angry. She had done wrong. As wrong of a thing as, she could, as anyone could do to me. Well, about a year later, she came back and she gave me an apology. She said, I am sorry. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. What can I say? And I explained to her what happened. She said, I'm sorry. And I was a young Christian. And so I said, okay, I I forgive you. I said the words. I got them out. I did what I was supposed to do. But the relationship never really came back together. We we had a, a couple outings together, and she could just kind of tell, you know, you're, you're just, you're not the same. And she asked me uh, about six months later, am I your friend? And I said, well, really, you're, you're more of an acquaintance. And that broke her heart. We were supposed to be friends after that. But I called her less than a friend. I said, you're somebody out there. You're nice. And the last word she said to me, and this was, this was 15 years ago, I will never speak to you again. She's kept her word. Now what happened? There was an opportunity for reconciliation there. But what did I do? I gave cheap forgiveness. I gave forgiveness because there was an apology. But I did not give reconciliation. I did not give relationship. I took the apology, I gave the words I forgive you, but I held on to it. I was more righteous now because she said I'm sorry. That is not what forgiveness on the basis of love is. If we look at this letter, we will see what forgiveness on the basis of love is very quickly. Verse 16, forgiveness on the basis of love reflects the new reality of the gospel. We are pursuing brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Second, forgiveness on the basis of love restores the relationship. Do not take him back as a mere slave. Receive him back as a brother. There's a relationship that is being restored. Third, we see that true forgiveness must be complete. What does Paul say in verse uh, 18? If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. What he means by that is once you say, I forgive you, there is nothing left about this debt. Either I'll pay for it or you're going to forgive it. But when this is over, there is no holding on to it. It is paid out. It is released. Debt canceled. There is no six months later, yeah, but still you did. It's over when it is forgiveness on the basis of love. And then fourth, forgiveness on the basis of love should not be delayed. Look at verse 22. After all of this has been said, Paul says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul is setting a clock. He is saying, I'm coming. I'm going to visit you. And I hope when I get there, I see all of this taken care of. So what he is saying there is, when we have somebody to forgive, we do not wait and wait and wait. We urge ourselves, we exhort ourselves, we do what we need to do to come to a place where we say, I forgive you. I am ready to forgive you. But you respond probably with saying, this hurts. It, it's, it's unnatural. It's costly. I can't, I can't forgive this thing that, that I have in my past. It's too painful. Let me say at least this much. There are some things where even in the best forgiveness that we can give on this side of heaven, there are places where we have to protect ourselves. If it is an abusive relationship, sexually or physically, there is only so much of that relationship that can be fixed. But we should recognize that those cases hopefully are small. But they do need to be considered. And if you need to talk to me as a pastor about one of the, or some of those situations, I'm happy to do that. So we're here. We, it hurts. It's unnatural. It's costly. I say it to all of that, yes. To say I'm sorry, I forgive you to, to my debate partner was hard. But we have to go to these words that were said to us on the cross. Jesus said to them, Father, forgive them for, I know not, for they know not what they do. While Christ was dripping blood and gurgling in his lungs the sounds of death, he still says, Father, forgive these people who have driven the nails into my hands and my feet, who have whipped my back, who have hurled uh, horrible taunts. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But here's the thing, Christ was on that cross for you, for me. Christ hung on that cross and gurgled to his last breath for your forgiveness. It was done for us. And so the key for Philemon may be what is said at verse 19. Paul says, you owe your own self. Paul is reminding him that Philemon Two was a runaway fugitive from God, a slave of sin who has now been made a son of God. 
And that was done at the cost, at the precious cost of God's one and only Son. So how can we not show the world the costly love given to us by giving it to others? So what was the result? Let's end the cliffhanger. The most likely conclusion is that Philemon did in fact respond to Onesimus with forgiveness and welcomed him back on account of this letter. And how do we know that? Because we have the letter. The letter would have been destroyed and burned if a Philemon had not responded on the basis of love. I want to end with this question for you. Is your understanding of the gospel and all the riches of Christ deep enough to forgive that person who has hurt you most? That's the question of Philemon. And if it is not, then let me ask one more probing question. Do you know God's forgiveness? Do you know it? Have you lived it out? Have you trusted in it? Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The forgiveness of Christ, the forgiveness of God is offered to all who would say, I am sorry. And it is the father of the prodigal son ready to wrap his arms around you and say, come into my banquet. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord, have mercy on me. I need you. And the power of this forgiveness will begin to reign and explode into every relationship of your life. Are you ready for that? Let's pray. Father, teach us the forgiveness of Christ that we might be forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. Help us to live on the basis of love, Father, not on the ways of the world. You are good and gracious. Let your goodness and graciousness flow through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.